right at the end of chapter 5, I believe, and I want to get to some horsing around today, so let me kind of take and capsulize the very end of chapter 5 for you. It ends beautifully. What we're doing, if you haven't, haven't been following us, is we're taking a breather. We're kind of going like this. Ah, because we have, the book of Revelation is, is, is organized circularly, right? Remember that. And every circle has seven parts to it. So the very first circle we go around is we're walking around the seven churches, right? And we're talking about what God sees in them and what God says I have against you. Well, you get done with that and you need a breather. You need to just say, whew, before we go to that next cycle of seven things, would you give us a breather, Lord? Would you give us a sense that you're present, that, that, that God all is well? And so this, this door opens up and John is able to go into what we might call the third heavens. And he's able to look at what is going on in heaven right now and with, with man's language describe, here, here's what's happening. And all of chapter four and all of chapter five, they go together, four and five, are that, whew, thank God, you are in control. And so we've looked at God on his throne. We've looked at the lamb that has overcome who has purchased us. We talked about that last week, right? Uh, kind of put that word picture in front of you that if, if I could sign your birth certificate and, and we had a line under there that said, owner, who is your owner? Who owns your soul? We're, we come into this world, we're owned by Satan. We're under sin. We're under the curse of the law. And rightfully, legally, legally, you know, you know what the word Satan means, right? Literally translated, defense attorney. Yeah, that's what it means. You thought, you thought lawyers were evil? You're right, okay? So, so here's this attorney who is going to come against us and charge us with this person here under the law does not meet the requirements to get into heaven. Is that true? Yeah, it is true. What are the requirements? Perfection. Perfection. Ye must be as Perfect as the Father in heaven. So we come into this world, who is our legal owner? It's Satan, all right? So what we're celebrating in this chapter is he, we see the lamb, the lamb is, lamb is slain. The lamb has overcome and has purchased us back with his blood. He says, give me that birth certificate. I'm gonna change the owner's name to me. And you know what happens when you're baptized? You, you're, the ownership gets transferred because in faith, the blood of Jesus Christ now covers your sins. You are set free from him, and you, you now legally, legally belong to Jesus Christ. So it's, it's a beautiful picture that we're getting here in chapters 4 and 5, that all is well, God is in control in heaven. And that's really how this, this chapter ends. Beginning verse number 11, it says, I looked and, and I heard around this throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels. This is kind of cool. Num numbering myriads of myriads. A myriad is about 10,000, right? So 10,000 times 10,000, you know, times 10,000. Uh, not meant to be literal numbers, right? Some people try to do that. They're like, oh, look, 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 we can count the number of angels in heaven. I'm like, no, you cannot. It's, an, it's symbolically meant to say that God created, when God created, his, his, one of his first creations was what? Angels, right? Spiritual beings that we today call the Sabbath army that have the role of serving him and serving the rest of his creation, you and me. And so what we're doing is we're seeing these, these angels, uh, millions of them, right? 
And uh, they are saying with a loud voice, they're crying out, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Now I want you to count the number of things that are, are spoken of Jesus here. I just want you to count them. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive, okay, now start counting, power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. How many? Surprise you? No, it's the Jesus number, right? And so what, what is being said is, you slain lamb, the one who is with, with God in heaven, seated at the right hand, are worthy to receive all that belongs to God. And um, it kind of takes you back to uh, where we were three weeks ago in Colossians, where we recognize that, that you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that there's a sense in which Colossians 1 tells us we're created by, by Jesus for Jesus. All of it belongs to you. All of creation is yours. And then verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and who is in the sea and all them saying. Now this is kind of cool. Um, when, when you hear this, this song being sung by the angels, um, now guess what happens? All of creation joins together in singing this song. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Now, notice this, this word uh, at the very beginning, I heard every creature. Okay. So I'm going to ask you this question. This, this particular scene, as we close out chapters 4 and 5, this breather that we're in, what, when will every creature, heaven, earth, sea, every single creature, bow down before God and acknowledge him as God? When will that happen? Only one day that's going to happen, right? The last day. When you think of your Bibles, is there a place um, where this is prophesied? Can you think of a place where it's prophesied? How about if you just kind of flip around here, turn over to Philippians. Just, just kind of flip over to flip to Philippians. Okay, in Philippians, kind of, kind of just I'm, I'm kind of testing you guys out a little, little bit here, but kind of look around Philippians and see if there is there any place there in Philippians. Look in chapter two. Is there any place in chapter two that kind of sounds like? Um, what we're just reading here, this, this last day when Jesus is revealed as the one to whom all things belong. Can you see anything there in chapter 2 that sounds like what we just read in Revelation? Okay, verse number 10. It's kind of prophetic, right? Uh, when, when Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, look at what he says in verse number 10. He says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's only one day when that happens, right? Now, don't get, don't get mixed up with this. We're not saying that on that last day when Jesus comes to, to judge the, the earth, right? We're not saying that everybody bows down before him and says, oh, you're Lord and everybody's saved. No. 
But it's, it's interesting that those who place themselves above God today, those who live as God, I, I'm in control of my life. You don't tell me what to do. I don't need a God. All of those people will bow down before him on the last day, and they will acknowledge him as God. I acknowledge you as God. And, and guess what? You don't acknowledge him as God. as Oh, good, you're God. It's, oh, God, you're God, right? They acknowledge him at that very point at which they're separated from him, right? So where, where Revelation is taking us at, this, at the end of chapter 5 is to that moment in history where all that exists acknowledges God as Savior. Those who belong to him, right, will now spend eternity with him. Those who are outside of faith will be separated from him for eternity. And so it takes us to that place where we recognize that God is, is fully in control and is leading all of history to this, this um, ultimate moment where the, the new earth is made and those who belong to him will live upon it. Back over to Revelation, verse number 14 kind of closes it off. It says, then the four living creatures said, Amen. Okay. And um, notice what they're saying. When, when a creature says amen, or when you say amen, we don't, get, we don't get as much of that as we need in the Lutheran church. We want to start an amen movement or something, you know. It's like, um, yeah, I love it. We had a Monday night service over here. Did I tell you guys about this? We had a Monday night service. Here, I'm starting to like Monday nights. So we're going to change our Monday night services just a little bit. I think we're going to call them unplugged, and we're going to do a little bit different stuff in that thing. But we had a guy come in there with his wife. He got his Bible out. And, um, and pretty soon, I'm just, just talking away. He's like, amen. And I'm like, oh, he's not Lutheran. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. It really was awesome, he and his wife. And then guess what? This is the fun part. Guess where they came from? The trailer park. And I uh, came in and our worshiping. I'm like, hey, praise God for you guys here amongst us today. Um, amen it actually has a meaning. It doesn't mean the sermon's over, right? Um, <laughs> Joel Brandt is now a pastor. And Joel Brandt's this little kid, first church I served in Wisconsin. And uh, just the, the funniest little kid, whenever his dad would preach, Pastor Charlie would preach, at the end of the sermon or whenever Joel thought the sermon should end. <laughs> He would stand up on the pew and he'd go, Daddy's done. <laughs> and I'd be, Amen, Amen, Amen. To that. So, Amen is actually a word that translates into the English. Here's what it means verily and true. That's what it means, all right? So, when somebody says Amen, you're saying that's true, verily and true. And so, as these creatures see, right, the, the, that, that Jesus Christ is being uplifted, this is, it's actually kind of a hard scene. All the creatures, heaven and earth, are saying, you, you are God Almighty. It all belongs to you. Those who are going to be separated, that's hard to see. It, re it really is hard to see. Me, me personally, you're like, I don't want to see, I don't want to see people separated from Jesus Christ for eternity. But the four living creatures, here's what they say. Amen. That's how God set it up. That's what's going to happen. And it's right our culture, one of the things they have against us as Christians is how can you people talk about a God of love who separates people and causes them to burn for eternity? How can you possibly say that's a God of love? You're telling me you're following some God who created this person and is going to cause them to burn, I mean, in fire, 
and your body's not burning up and you want it to burn up because you want to be dead. And you can actually see people that are in heaven. Now, new earth. And everything in you is like, I can't be there. You're telling me that's a God of love. Yes, I am telling you that's a God of love. As a God who loved his creation, who made his creation, and made him for him, who said, I want you to live in my son, Jesus Christ. But guess what? Amen. Verily and truly, our God remains true to the word that he spoke at the very beginning. And don't, don't think for a minute that in that garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, and, and God's speaking to them, when he said, now, now death has come into the world. Don't think for a minute he's just talking about physical death. He's talking about death is now coming to the world. A separation from me. And he knew it would happen before he even created. And that's the scene that we're seeing. And so what we're really saying at the end of chapter 4 and 5 is God is fully in control of all of history. From its very beginning to the very last day when all of creation bows down before him. And that God who is fully in control is going to help you walk through what you're getting ready to see next. And so John has finally permission to say, okay, I'm ready for the second set of seven. And I'm going to just tell you, each, each circle, you know, I mean, the, the, in the middle of the circle is, is Jesus Christ. And we're going to walk around him and we're going to see what is happening in history all the way to the end relative to Jesus Christ. Every time we do that, it gets a little bit harder and a little bit harder and a little bit harder. <coughs> So these X curses where we step out and we get to see all that's happening just remind us that when you're going through the last days and there's horrible stuff happening, God is still in control. He is on his throne. And the day will come when all of creation acknowledges that. Okay? Are you ready for the second seven? Are you ready to horse around a little bit? Okay. Chapter 6. It says, the seven seals. Okay. Begins with simple words. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, come. Okay. It's kind of interesting how this second set begins. We're going to have four horses, right, that are going to ride. Normally, when we think of, of horses, um, there's images that kind of come to our mind. Uh, living in our state, a number of, of people, I mean, horses is part of your daily life, right? It's part of your, your work. Um, if you're a city person, if you grew up in the city like I did, you know, most of my exposure to, to horses as a kid was watching westerns, right, on television, and then moving to hill country, in San Antonio, and finally having the opportunity to start riding those creatures, right? So most of us think of horses, and we think of them as they're, they're, they are work animals, uh, they're fun to, to, to ride. Sometimes we put them in races and bet money on them. Uh, that's kind of how we think of horses. If you go back into antiquity, if you go back into biblical time, hor horses were used for, for work. They are work product, but typically they, they are associated with what? With war with battle, right? When you walk down the streets in Rome, you can see the first aspect. Um, the streets in Rome have these little blocks that kind of come up fairly, fairly high in the street that allow you to, to step across the street. They're stepping stones. They're kind of the first, 
example of stepping stones in history. The reason that they had those stepping stones is be, when you get into Rome, there's not a sewage system like there is in our day and time. And when it would rain and when it would get really wet, the streets would be yuck. I mean, they would be filled with sewage. And so you would want to step across those stepping stones. Most people were not allowed to. Most people had to just walk through the junk. But they're set at a height where your horses could drive chariots across those streets. And um, the chariots represented the heart and core and strength of Rome. We, we are a, a nation who will cause the rest of the world to come under our submission. So when you see these horses, the first thing that I want you to think about is, uh, what, what are they? Well, they're not work animals. They're not out chasing cows down. They're, they're what? They are agents of war. All four of them are agents of war. We're going to see these, a white horse. We're going to see a red horse. We're going to see a black horse. And we're going to see a pale horse. That's usually the word that's used in our translations. All four of them, I want you to start thinking about this, all four of them represent um, destruction, battle, a war that's going on to destroy human beings and separate human beings for eternity from Jesus Christ. All four of them, all right? Um, this is not the only place in the Bible where, by the way, you see horses. Um, there's another scripture where you see four horses riding, and they kind of complement each other. So I don't want you to miss this. As we go through each of these seals, the first four will be the four horses, and then we'll continue on. But as you go through them, it's kind of interesting that, that while hell has its four horses that ride and seek to destroy, God also has his four horses. You know where else in the Bible you find four horses? It's kind of interesting. I'll show it to you so that you've, you've kind of got it in mind before we start. Look over in Zechariah and turn to chapter 1 of Zechariah, kind of towards the, uh, the end of the Old Testament. And look at, chapter, look at chapter 1 of Zechariah. Remember Zechariah is a prophet. He is living just post the Babylonian captivity. And in this instance, he's describing um, the work of God amongst his people. And it's kind of uplifting in a way. Go to verse 7, chapter 1, Zechariah, and, uh, and, and watch these words. This is on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, the month of rest. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, who's the son of Ditto. <laughs> Iddo, Ditto. <clears throat> I'm not sure that's true, but anyway, there was an Edo saying, I saw in the night and behold a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. So two reds, one white, one sorrel. Then I said, what, what are these, my Lord? The angel who was talking with me said to me, I'll show you what they are. So, the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. 
Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? Okay. Um, kind of an interesting scene in Zechariah. What the prophet is seeing is the antithesis to what you're going to see in Revelation. In Revelation, four horses of hell. In Zechariah, four horses of heaven. A reminder, right? There's not, there's not literally horses, right? These are symbols, right? Symbols of what? War. That there's a war going on right now, and I, I forget this some days. For my soul, for your soul. That there's a war going on right now for the soul of my kids. That there's a war going on right now for the soul of my grandkids. Is it a real war? Absolutely. Can I see it with my eyes? Not really. Are these horses riding, stampeding the earth right now? What are they? They're the forces of hell over and against the forces of heaven. And so really what you're getting a look at in symbol, symbols are the, are the work of Satan and his agencies versus God and his Sabbath host of angels. And you're getting to peek at what's going on as you look at each one of these horses. The first one is the most dangerous of all the horses. It creates the most destruction. It is the one that most people miss. It's the white horse. Take a look at it. It says, I heard one of the four creatures with a voice like thunder cry out, Erku, come. Let it resonate inside your mind. Let it go right down you. You say it. I hear you guys say this almost every week. I stand up in front of you and you say, Erku, you just don't say it in Greek. You say it in English. Here's how you say it. Let thy kingdom come. You pray it every week. When you pray that, you're praying for something good, right? You're saying, God, would you take us to that last day? Would you take us to the day when everything on heaven and earth and in the heavens and under the seas bows down before you? Come. Now, rend the heavens and come. That's what you're crying out to him for. Okay. That's good. In this case, the seal breaks, and we hear the voice of one of the four living creatures, the one with eyes all around them, right? What we, what we call some of the cherubim in heaven, angels. Cry out, Erku, come now. In this case, what's going to come as we rip open the seal is not good. We, we'd almost have the sense of, don't, don't say that. Don't let that white horse, do not let it out of its pen. That thing is going to do a lot of destruction. Don't let it out. What does the angel say? Let it out. Come on down. This is, this is something you have to wrap your mind around all the way through the book of Revelation is the agent who is causing the white horse to come or who is allowing the white horse to come is God. So it's like God is going to pop these seals open and unleash onto earth hell on earth. What are you thinking, God? Saying, I'm going to use every single thing that I do to bring people to dependency upon me. But don't mistake this. God is the one who pops the seal open and allows this white horse to come 
it's white. In Greek, the word is lukos. It's an interesting word, this word white, because we think of, you know, we think of our shades, I forget how many shades of white they sell you, like don't go into a paint store and say you want white paint. They'll be like, what kind of white paint? White, white, white paint. They're like, well, we have like 70 kinds of white, white paint. You're like, 70 white, white paints? Goodness gracious. That's why I don't go into paint stores. I send in. So go get some white paint. <laughs> get some white paint and bring it back. Anyway, this white horse, when you say it in, in Greek, lukos, you, you can hear the word light. Light. A light horse. It's beautiful. Okay. It also happens to be the first part of the name of someone who I think you know pretty well, Lucifer. Lucifer. You hear it and you think of a person in a, you think red, don't you? Lucifer, don't you think red? If your kids are going to dress up like Lucifer on Halloween, they get their red suit with little horns. No, 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 it's the wrong color. Red is not Satan's color. White is. You know why? Because he is an angel. Lucifer means the angel of light. He looks beautiful. One of the best scenes I've ever seen, you know, in movies we, we portray the devil in different ways. One of the best scenes I've ever seen kind of portraying this uh, was back in the day of Indiana Jones. Man, I liked Indiana Jones. And uh, remember he was on, he's, he's searching for the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that first movie where he gets in the snakes and all that stuff? And it's just a fun movie anyway. They find this Ark of the Covenant and they pop the lid of this thing off and remember, they're kind of hiding back and watching, and these angels come out of it. And then remember his, his words? All, all these Germans are watching this happen. They go, they're beautiful. They're beautiful. And then just like that, they turn, and they start to kill. Okay? It's probably one of the best depictions I've ever seen of what I would say is described right here, is this horse, you, you have to know this, looks beautiful. In fact, it looks like what? It's an agent of good. You would look at it and you would say, that is good. We, that's what we need, what we want. All right? Guess what the white horse represents? False religion. False religion. Something that looks right, looks good, looks like it will help you, looks like it takes you to light. But if you... If you take it into yourself, it will what? Destroy you. It means to kill you. It means to separate you from God. Now, kind of interesting how he describes the writer, the writer, the one here. He says, I looked and behold a white horse. Its rider had a bow, has a bow in his hand. This is kind of interesting to me. The word for, for bow is toxon. So this is the English toxon. And, and we, you can kind of hear this English word in it, toxic. Okay, so if you look at someone with a bow and an arrow going into a battle, you're like, well, what good is that going to do? You got like a little, like, what, what good will that do you, right? Like get, like get a cannon or something and, sh and shoot people. Like, well, bows, bows, little arrows, one at a time, one at a time, one at a time, one at a time, kill you and kill you slowly. Toxic poison kills you slowly. Guess what the white horse brings? Toxic toxins into your life words that take you away from Jesus Christ, even though they look like they're taking you towards Jesus Christ. You take them into your body and slowly they poison you and they mean to kill you eternally. The white horse looks good. 
He's carrying a bow. And he's given something. This is the surprising thing. Surprising to me. He is given a crown. There you go. Here's a crown. So he is given, if your name is Stephen, that's, that's crown, right? Stephanos. He's given a crown. What does that mean? Let me, give you a, let me give you a hint that you'll find over in Paul's writings in Ephesians chapter 2. Just flip over there with me. This is a familiar scripture to us as Lutherans, but I really, really want you to get this today so that you can see this white horse riding amongst us. In Ephesians chapter 2, there are some words spoken that I believe kind of help you understand what it means for us to say that there's a white horse riding. He's got a bow. It means to kill, right? But he's given a crown. What does that mean that he's given a crown? Take a look at this in uh, chapter 2 of Ephesians. It says, and you, it's just describing us, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now watch these words. These are important. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the atmosphere, the spirit that is now at work in the sun's of disobedience. Guess who that is? Lucifer. He is not a king. He doesn't own the world. But he's been given a crown. He's a prince. What is his domain? Remember back in the book of Revelation chapter 12, we'll, we'll get to it. The scene is described where a war takes place in heaven. The war is between God, Satan, Lucifer, those angels that Lucifer has pulled together to fight this battle, and it is a battle to do what? To have the crown. I want to be king of everything, says Lucifer. Lucifer loses that battle, and what does God do? Takes him and says, I now cast you down onto the earth. This is now your domain. When he casts him down, he permissions him, he gives him a crown, you are the prince of this world. Right? You, you have authority within boundaries to work in this world to, to come against my elect. Now, this kind of boggles people's minds. They're like, well, why, why does God give this crown to Satan? Why would you do that? Why not just have this war in heaven and destroy him and just end it all? No, no more devils, no more angels, no more saints. Just get rid of it all, okay? No, 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 that's not God's plan. Think about this. From the very beginning, before God said, let there be light, did he know that Adam and Eve would fall? Yes. Did he know when he created angels? I will have one that will gather and come against me. Yes. Created anyway. Created him anyway. Why? God of love. Who says, I'm, I want... I want people to be in a relationship with me that is real. A real relationship requires that you and I have the ability to do what? Turn away. I can turn away from God. I don't have a real relationship with him without that. If, if all we are is, okay, I made you all, I put you here, and now you, you don't have a choice, you just belong to me, that's not relationship. Relationships always require that I have the ability to do it, to turn away from you, okay? 
part of God's plan. Do I understand this? No. I'm not going to stand up in front of me and say, oh yeah, I get this. No. But part of God's plan is, in order for people to have real relationship with me, I'm going to allow, within limitations, the angel of light, Lucifer, and those fallen angels that allied with him to tempt and test human beings. Here's why. When that happens, guess what happens relationally? It forces you and I to a place where we on our knees have to say, my God, how do I fight that? Listen, if you could see this white horse, what you're looking at are demons. You would say to yourself, how do you fight that? How do you, how do you battle with a spiritual ent entity that's been on earth since its creation? You'll lose. You can't do it. That enemy will destroy you unless what? You come before Jesus Christ and you say, dear Jesus Christ, help. I can't fight this battle. That's exactly right. You can't. You must depend upon me to fight this battle. And it is literally a battle. Homes where we're not inviting Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God into our, into our everyday are in danger. Very, very real danger spiritually. And that's the purpose, I believe, that, that we see associated with the giving of the crown to Satan. You have my permission to ride. Go ahead and ride. And so Satan is smart. He says, guess what? I'm going to ride the white horse. I'm going to look like the good guy. I'm going to look like the one that everybody goes, that's, that's good stuff. And so he is riding today. False religion. And... Notice what else is given to him. If you flip back over there to the Revelation, it says, he came out conquering and to conquer. That is his intention, is to overcome us with his lies and to separate our souls from God for eternity. By the way, just a fun fact. Um, if, you, if you like tennis shoes, Nike, right? That's actually the word that's used here for conquering and to conquer. Nikos is the Greek behind the word conquer. It means I've come to, to over, overcome you. I will make you my own. I will keep you my own. Okay. When I look at this, I think about, um, I don't know if you've ever taken courses in world religions. But so what's interested to me, when I, whenever I get into a class on world religions, what's always interesting to me is most world religions have a place in them for Jesus Christ. Most of them do. Okay. Do Mormons. Absolutely. I talk to Mormons and I say, hey, what do you guys think about Jesus Christ? We're, well, we're the church Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ. We love Jesus. Jesus is one of us. Are you telling me Jesus is a Mormon? Well, yeah. If you go to Salt Lake City and you go to the tabernacle, which we, we actually couldn't go in, and we looked at their book, and in, in there is... Somebody, it's Jesus. He's in there. It's a Mormon. So you love Jesus. Yes, we do. And you're telling me that Jesus is, is a Mormon. He's coming back. Yes, he's going to come back. And he's going to come back to the Garden of Eden, which happens to be in Missouri. Right? We live fairly close to the Garden of Eden where Jesus is going to come back. Uh, and Mormons are going to, Right, right? I mean, Jesus is going to come back and, and, and Mormons are going to know, okay, 
God has given each one of us our own planet so that we can be gods. And Jesus started it off. And he'll have this planet. Hmm. Didn't know that Jesus was Mormon. So then I talked to a Buddhist. I'm like, hey, what do you guys think about Jesus? Love him to death. Who was he? He's a Buddha. Oh, I thought he was a Mormon. No, no, he's a Buddha. He's a Buddha? Yep, he's a Buddha. I mean, Buddhists like him. Talk to Islamic people. Hey, what do you think about Jesus? Love him. You love Jesus? Yep. He's a prophet. He's a great prophet. I've always said, well, why, why do Islamic people hate Christians and love Jesus? Well, because they believe Jesus was what? Just a man, just a prophet. And so when Christians deify that prophet, that's what they hate. That's what they come against. But they love Jesus Christ. There are very few religions that you can actually think about in the United States and worldwide that don't have a place for Jesus. Do Hindus? Of course. Jesus is what? He's an incarnation of God. And so they have a place for Jesus. And so you go world round, and most world religions would say to us, Jesus is a great guy. And so it sounds good to us. I say, well, what's wrong with them then? I mean, they, they all love Jesus. They have a place for Jesus. They're the white horse. They're part of the white horse. They would say to us, we have Jesus in us. But they've taken that word of God and turned it into what? The law. Every world religion can be summed up. Bill Hybels came up with this, by the way, and I love it. You see, you can always tell the difference between world religions and Christianity with just two words. Okay? The two words are these. Every single world religion that you look at today, they talk about Jesus Christ, but here's what they turn them into, the word D-O. What have you got to do? to secure your salvation. He says, as Christians, we add a couple of letters to that. We are the ones that say, we follow a God who has D-O-N-E, done everything necessary for our salvation. It's what separates us. But the white horse, I just want to say this to you, looks good, looks right, rides today in a very interesting way. Let me just close with this. And then we'll pick it back up next week. Is the white, question for you guys, is the white horse riding within the Christian church today? Probably the most dangerous horse of all, right? Why? Because in just a couple of days, and I don't get to go, and I'm very sad. I am sad. My friend. My friend is going to be in Lincoln. You too can be in Lincoln. I will sell you some tickets to come and hear me. Because God loves you. You know God loves you. And he wants you to be rich. He wants you to be rich. Why aren't you rich? Now, um, within Christianity today, there are the white horses riding in a mighty way. In a way that I fear for, and I'm just going to close on this note today, I literally fear for my grandkids because it is very hard unless you grow up in a home where you begin to really know the word and can distinguish truth from untruth it is very hard not in this culture that we live in to get caught up in the theology of the white horse
and to say that you're a Christian. I am a Christian. And you're not. And it's why I believe Jesus Christ speaks these words. And on that day, many of you will say unto me, Lord, Lord, and I will say unto you, I know you not. Within the Christian church, the white horse rides prominently, distorting, twisting, stripping just little bits of his truth away, separating us from the only one in whom we find salvation, Jesus Christ. We'll pick up with that next week. Let's pray. Lord God.